My wife Erin and I have three daughters, and our oldest is 15 now. And you know what that means. She's talking about driving, which has already done wonders for my prayer life. So for that, I'm grateful. And, uh, you know, I look for opportunities now when I'm driving to just kind of point things out to her so that she can begin to learn how to drive. Sometimes things are obvious. Like yesterday, uh, we took him to something out in Syracuse, and we were driving up 481 North, coming back home where we live. And uh, as we were driving, I was in the right lane doing my, you know, nine miles over speed limit thing. And a motorcyclist came by me easily going 100 miles an hour. I mean, scared us all, flew by me. And I said to Lily, I said, don't ever drive like that. And he was going so fast that apparently he missed his exit because I saw him further down 481 North headed towards me on the shoulder of the road to get back to the exit he missed. <laughs> and again, I said to my daughters, do not drive like that. Some traffic laws are obvious, some are subtle, and I learned this week that some are a little ridiculous. Here are some traffic laws that are still on the books as of March of 2023. In Alabama, the law says it's illegal to drive while you're blindfolded. Illegal. <laughs> Against the law. The only problem with it. In Alaska, you cannot drive your car with your dog tied to it. All dog lovers said, good. In Glendale, California, it's illegal to jump out of a car that is going over 65 miles an hour. Illegal. Connecticut, it is illegal to hunt from a car. Sorry, Pastor Bill, you cannot hunt from your car in Connecticut. In Illinois, it's illegal to drive a car without a steering wheel, not to mention impossible. The two craziest ones that I came across was in Louisiana, a woman's husband is required by law to walk in front of the car waving a flag as she drives it. I'll let you write your own punchline to that joke. And in Massachusetts, it is against the law to drive with a gorilla in your back seat. In the front seat, it is okay if its seat belt is buckled. Real traffic laws. This morning, as we continue through our series through the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, we come to Moses and the law. And the people of Israel have been set free from Egyptian slavery, and seven weeks have passed, and now they're at the foot of the Mount Sinai, and, and God is about to give his law to his people. And in Exodus 19, God calls out from the mountain and says this in verse uh, 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And the people answered together, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And so God tells Moses, Have the people consecrate themselves, because on the third day I'm going to come down upon the mountain in my presence. Tell the people, do not go near the mountain. So on the third day, there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a thick cloud on the mountain and there's a very loud trumpet blast and all the people are in the camp and they're pretty scared. In fact, the Bible says that they trembled. People came and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The trumpet sound was getting louder and louder. Moses speaks, God answers in a thunder and then the Lord calls Moses up. I wonder if for a second Moses is like, are you, you sure? Me? 
Moses goes up, and when he returns, he does not return alone. He returns with the law, the Ten Commandments. When you look at the book of Exodus from 30,000 feet in the air, what you see is this. Chapters 1 through 18 are about God setting the people Israel free from the masters around them. But chapters 19 through 40 are about God setting the people of Israel free from the masters within them. Many of us have learned in life that the biggest problem we each face is not outside of us, but usually it's inside of us. And so 22 chapters of this book are dedicated to understanding the law of God. Now, this is the part of the Bible that if you're trying to read through the Bible in a year and you get to this portion, this is when you start to lose your momentum, if we're honest, because there's lots of laws and they don't make sense to us and we're not sure what to do with them. I want to help us really briefly this morning. There are three categories of laws in the Old Testament. Two of them do not apply to you today. One of them still does. There is the moral law of God, which is well summarized in the Ten Commandments, and those continue to apply to people today, God's desire for his people, how they should live good lives. But there's also the civil law of God in the Old Testament, and the civil law of God was the way in which the people of Israel were supposed to function as a people. We have our own civil laws today that are handed to us from our government, and the New Testament authors do tell us that we should obey those laws, but we're not under the civil laws of the people of Israel at this time. So when there are certain punishments that are listed and certain things that you should do and not do that are specific to living life together, those don't apply to our lives today. And then the third category are the ceremonial laws, the things of the sacrifice of animals and the ways in which they were worshipped. So ceremonial laws and civil laws do not apply to us today. I'm glad Otherwise, we'd be killing animals this morning, but the moral laws still do. And so the question in front of us this morning, and what I want us to try and do with the Ten Commandments, with which many people are familiar, but not sure if they're relevant or helpful, is to simply answer this question. How, do we, how are we to understand and receive the Ten Commandments? What do they mean for us 2023 today? And I hope that we'll see three things, three ways that we are to receive the Ten Commandments. First, as a gift of sovereign grace. Secondly, as a call to true worship. And then lastly, as a way to live free. Okay? Gift of sovereign grace, a call to true worship, and a way to live free. First, a gift of sovereign grace. If you're anything like me, when somebody gives you a rule or a law, like don't do this, don't say that, don't go there, don't touch that, the first thing that I want to ask is, says who? <laughs> says who? Because I want to know, do they have the authority, the knowledge, and maybe even the relationship to speak into my life? And it's almost as if God anticipating the nature of humankind, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, but before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he answers the question, says who? And this is how he answers it. Exodus 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, the Ten Commandments, or the Jewish people would call it the Decagogue, the Ten Words, saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right from the beginning, God wants you to know the one who is giving you the law is the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. We have to notice the source of the law. This is a living, relational God who is acting in history at specific times in specific places for specific purposes. And his giving of the law here is a gift 
of sovereign grace. The way in which we know that this is the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, is that he calls himself your God. He's taking ownership of them. He's saying, I am the Lord's your God, and implied in that is this important phrase, you are my people. Now listen, we don't give rules and laws to those who do not belong to us. For example, I do not give rules to other parents' children. You know, I give rules and expectations to my kids. We went to Seabreeze earlier this summer, and we went and we were going on water rides, and I told my girls, here's the expectations for how you're going to handle yourself, and here's what we're going to do. I saw a lot of other kids whose parents don't have the same rules and the same expectations, and a part of me would have loved to have shared my laws and rules with those kids, but I also didn't want to get beat up, so I didn't say anything. Right, parents, we know we can give our kids the law, but we cannot give every other kid the law. And so when God gives Israel the law, it's actually him revealing his father's heart for them. Because I'm your father, because you are my people, here is the law. You are my people. But also we see his grace in this when he says, not just I am the Lord your God, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, remember what I have done for you. This is called a gospel pattern, which means throughout Scripture we see certain patterns that reveal the gospel. And the pattern that we see in Exodus is that Moses did not come to the Israelites in Egypt and say, here's the Ten Commandments. If you follow them, God will take you out of slavery. He didn't come to the Israelites and say, here's the Ten Commandments. If you can just get it right for a week, just a day, then God will bring No, first the Exodus, then the giving of the law. This reveals the pattern of the gospel, which is this. We do not save ourselves by keeping rules. God doesn't come to us and say, if you clean yourself up, if you get your act together, if you stop with this habit, if you stop doing this, that, and the other, then I will save you. What God does is he comes to us in the lowest moments of our lives with his sovereign grace. And he extends his saving love to us. And once we've tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord, then and only then we can receive the law of God, not as duty and obligation, but as a gift of sovereign grace. There's one other other important way in which we know that the law was a gift of sovereign grace. If you know this story, you know this. The Hebrews had been enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. 400 years, almost twice the duration of our country. Nobody alive in the wilderness, and the estimate is that there was probably one and a half to two million Hebrews in the wilderness. None of them had ever lived free. None of them had self-governed. None of them had decided for themselves when to rest, when to use the bathroom, where to sleep, what to do for 400 years. Not only were they not free, they never knew a parent who was free. And now you take a million plus people and put them in the wilderness who have never self-governed and don't know how to live, and you give them no civil law. It's the cruelest thing God could have done. And so by giving them a civil law saying, this is what it looks like to live as a people, God was saying, I love you and I care for you and it's my grace And we know that this statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, was so important because according to Hebrew tradition, whenever they would read through the Ten Commandments, they would always go back and read this statement before each commandment. So it would sound like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But then later on, they would go back and say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Do not murder. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not 
covet. They would go back and read this before every commandment because it was a reminder to them that the law first must be received as a gift of grace. Once you receive it that way, it has the power to actually change your life. And until you receive it that way, it is just a burden upon your soul. The second thing that we see in the Ten Commandments and the way that we should receive it is not just that it's a gift of grace, but that it is a call to true worship. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. At this time in history and in this culture and in this place in the world, everybody worshipped gods. There was no such thing as naturalism or scientific rationale or human reasoning. I'm sorry, there was human reasoning, but not human reasoning that excluded supernatural explanation for things. Everybody thought there was a divine reason behind everything that happened. From the sunrise to the sunset to battles that were won and battles that were lost. So everybody at this time worshipped gods, plural. It's a pantheistic world. And into this world comes the voice of the one true God, Yahweh, saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And that Hebrew word before me is in my presence or even in my face. Don't bring your gods before me, these lesser gods, these false gods. Now, you might think, well, that's ancient. That's their problem. We don't have that problem anymore. But the truth is, is that everyone still worships something. David Foster Wallace, Pulitzer Prize winning author, in a a commencement address he gave to Kenyon College in 2006, I believe, he talks about this. He says, everybody worships something. He wasn't a believer, but he understood human nature. He said, everybody's looking to something or someone for ultimate value and worth. Everybody looks at something and says, if I only had that, then life would be worth living. Or if I ever lost that, then life wouldn't be worth living. And his point in his talk, which I don't have in front of me, is simply this. Whatever you worship has tremendous godlike power over you. So if you worship beauty and sexual allure, then you'll die a thousand deaths before they plant you, because as your looks go away, your worth and your value go away. If you worship power, then you're always worried about being found out to be a fraud. If you worship control, then there's no peace for you in any moment of your life. And his point being this that everyone worships something. No one gets to, maybe you don't go to church, maybe you don't lift your hands, maybe you don't sing songs, maybe you're not religious, but you're a worshiper. And God knew that. And right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in verse one, he said, or first one, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about the Ten Commandments. He says, nobody breaks commandments two through 10 without first breaking commandment number one. The sin beneath every sin is having another God above Yahweh. Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away recently, but pastored a church in New York City for many years, he was explaining Martin Luther's words, and he said this. He said, Luther says that if we obey God's law without a belief that we are already accepted and loved in Christ, already accepted, apart from our ability to keep the law, that we are already accepted and loved in Christ, then even our good deeds will be nothing more than looking to something other than Jesus to be our real source of meaning and happiness. You might be trusting in your good parenting or your moral uprightness or your career or your spiritual performance or your intellect or your education or being better than other people, smarter than other people, more informed than other people on the inside of things. And those things become your real functional savior and you worship those things and you know you're worshiping worshiping it because you're making sacrifices to it and for it. And it has tremendous power over you. You, If you want to know what you worship, pay attention to the attention of your mind and the affections of your heart. 
Where does your mind always drift to when you have nothing else to think about? And what has the most power over your heart? What has the most power over your emotions? And that's why Martin Luther says that committing idolatry is not trusting in Christ alone for our approval. Every sin is rooted in an inordinate, which means out of control, lust for something which comes because we are trusting in that thing rather than in Christ for our righteousness and our salvation. The first commandment is foundational to all the other commandments. We will not break commandments 2 through 10 unless we are first breaking commandment number 1 by serving something or someone other than God. Now, you might go, okay, that makes sense, but why worship this God? Isn't he just like all the other gods who just want everything from me? And what we have to understand is that the call to worship here is not a narcissistic, self-absorbed, needy God who simply wants something from us, but rather this is a generous, selfish, loving God, the God who delivered you from the land of Egypt and the house of slavery, who doesn't just want something from you, he wants something for you. And he's created us to worship, and true worship is found in serving only the one who can actually fulfill all of our heart's deepest need, which is this, the need to be both fully known and fully loved. In all life, we fear that if we're fully known, we can't be fully loved, and to be fully loved, we cannot be fully known. And yet, Tim Keller says it this way, God knows us to the bottom, but he loves us to the sky. He knows us to the bottom, but he loves us to the sky. The gospel is this, that I am more sinful and flawed than I would ever dare admit or believe, but I, in Jesus Christ, I am more loved than I would ever dare dream or hope. This is what it means to have no other gods, to keep this commandment. So what does this look like? This is our third point this morning. The Ten Commandments, it's a gift of sovereign grace. It is a call to true worship in a world of worshipers. The only question is not are you worshiping, but who are you worshiping, and what is it costing you? And then the third way that we receive the Ten Commandments is it's a way to live free. Verses 4 through 17 unpack the next nine commandments. Years ago, a film came out called Frozen. Um, I'm guessing this is not news to you, Um, but having all daughters in my home, it was a, a present presence in our life. Uh, I've come to dislike much of the song, uh, much of the songs, and, uh, and um, you know, the big song was Let It Go, and, uh, but my favorite song from Frozen is actually the song that the snowman sings, Olaf. Do you remember Olaf? Olaf is a snowman who is infatuated with summer, if you don't know the, if you don't know the movie. He's a snowman who just thinks summer is real living. Summer is where it's at. Summer is true freedom. And he sings this cute, funny, little tongue-in-cheek, unaware song about how great life must be for a snowman in summer, totally unaware that he'll just be a puddle in summer. When I was listening to that song, I thought, you know, freedom, the way that we define freedom is freedom is always somewhere else or something else. Or freedom is our right to choose anything we want for ourselves. Even if I'm a snowman, if I want to choose summer, you can't tell me I can't choose summer because I'm free to choose summer and summer is true freedom. Yet here's what we actually learn through this silly song is that freedom is not the throwing off of all restraints. True freedom is embracing the right ones. Just like a fish is best, can live free in water but not on land, the freedom is not on the land, the freedom is in the water. Is there a restraint? Yes, but what is the purpose of the restraint? Life. And when God gives us these laws, he's not raining on our parade. He's not unaware of our struggles with them. 
He, he's not unaware of how these hit our ears this morning. Some of you, this stuff is going to sound archaic and harsh and worse than that. Yet what if, just give yourself the opportunity to consider, what if chasing everything else, you're a fish hungry for land? You're a snowman thinking summer is freedom. And yet the Ten Commandments actually are the way in which we live free and we flourish. Let's talk about them real quick. The first four commandments, by the way, are, are about our vertical relationship with God, and the next six are about our horizontal relationships with each other. Let's go through them. The first one we've talked about plenty, no other gods. The second one, he says, do not create images to worship. Now, here's what this means. Back then, they actually would make out of stone and rock uh, and, uh, um, and wood idols that they would worship. We don't really do that in America, or at least certainly uh, many of us do not do that anymore, but what do we do instead? Well, the point of this um, commandment for us today is this simple truth, that God, according to Genesis 1 and 2, created humankind in his image. We are created in God's image, and we are not to return the favor. We are not to create God in our image. In other words, I got some, I'm going to burst some bubbles this morning. God does not agree with everything that you think. God doesn't share all of your preferences and your opinions and your political views and your, all these sort of things that define who you are. God doesn't fit into that box because God's not created in your image. You are created in God's image. And so we are to be careful about the way in which we even understand who God is to make sure that we have not created a God who agrees with us. And if you have a God who agrees with you on everything, then you have a God of your own creation, not a God of the Bible. Do not create images to worship. We're not to worship creation. We're to worship the creator. And the last thing that I think this might mean is this. Do not look to the work of your hand to be your God. Whatever your work is, whether you're in construction, finances, medicine, teaching, education, or just work around the house, gardening, cleaning, arts, whatever it is, this is, this, this is warning us. Do not look to the work of your hands to save you. It cannot save you. It cannot be your God. And if we make it our God, uh, it will enslave us. We won't be free. Third one is do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, this one we usually just think of cursing and cussing, yet it's really not what it meant in its original content. What it meant was this. Do not speak carelessly or recklessly of God. Do not be irreverent about him. Do not use his names for your selfish agendas and your wrong purposes. And if I'm honest, pockets of Christianity have a long history of doing this, using the name of God to do things that do not honor God. And yet here they are violating this. They are taking the Lord's name in vain. And also be careful. Do not credit to God thoughts and words that he does not have. That's taking his name in vain. The fourth one is the first command in the positive form, which is remember the Sabbath. And this is a command that many people think was instituted on Sinai, but it wasn't started here. It was instituted in Genesis 2 in creation as God rested on the seventh day. And this simply is God's way of reminding the Israelites, when you were in Egypt, you could not Sabbath. When you're enslaved, you do not Sabbath. You don't choose when you rest. You do not rest. And yet he's saying here, I've done all this work to set you free. Do not go back into slavery. Learn what it means to rest. Learn what it means to trust. Learn what it means to know that I don't have to have my hands on everything all the time for the world to keep moving forward. 
I don't have to respond to emails every two minutes. I don't have to be connected to my work 24-7, that there is an important way in which our souls, and this is not just Bible. I mean, this is like medical, and you can talk to mental health experts. There are ways in which our souls need regular rest from our work, and if we cannot Sabbath, we are not free. The last six, honor your father and your mother, every mom and dad's favorite commandment, right? I made my girls memorize this one. But then I remembered I have a mom. And we continue to honor our parents. And in fact, the Hebrew here indicates that this is not just when you're growing up in their home, but this is beyond that. There's a way in which to care for parents uh, as they are growing older, as they are elderly, to continue to honor them and care for them. The interesting thing about this commandment is this is the first relationship that every human being has, mother and father. And it's the same relationship. Everyone has this relationship. It's the first commandment with a promise. And the promise says long life, but it's not necessarily guaranteeing days. What it's guaranteeing is a life full of the life that God has for you, free life. The sixth commandment, do not murder. It, I want to point out it's murder, not kill. So those are two different Hebrew words, and God says do not murder. If the command was do not kill, then the Israelites would have broken the sixth commandment because there were times that they had to go into battle and fight for their survival. This is not, this is not do not kill. There are people who have do things for our military, and, right? This is do not murder. That's different. And before you kind of skip past the sixth commandment thinking, I know I haven't done this one, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm telling you, if you hate your brother in your heart. This is about the heart. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. This is a glaring reminder that God wants to speak to every area of our lives. That nothing is off limits to God, including our sexuality, including our bodies, the way in which we use them, how they can, the way we use our bodies can hinder or honor his wise plan for human freedom and human flourishing. I know that today in our world, this is a hang-up. And people are like, how dare God? How dare he talk to me about this area of my life? And yet, if he's God of all, he gets to speak into every area of our lives. Tim Keller says, contemporary people examine the Bible looking for things they cannot accept. But Christians should do the opposite, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things that God cannot accept. And let me remind you that this is about true freedom and flourishing and the way that God wants us to live. The ninth commandment is to bear false witness. This is about a legal trial in which false testimony can lead to punishment for an innocent person. This is the idea about the misuse of justice, using our words and our actions to bring about wrong outcomes through things that are not true or partially true. And God is saying, do not do this. This is damaging to the community. And then the last commandment is this, do not covet. Now, when I get to this one, I think, oh, man. Here we move from observable behavior, for the most part, to something you can almost never see. Coveting is in the heart. Coveting is like, it almost doesn't feel like it belongs in this list. Murder, adultery, stealing, and don't want things too much. Like, it almost feels like it shouldn't be here. But here's what I think it means. Now, this is why I think this is the 10th and final commandment, because God is trying to remind us this is always a heart issue. This is not just about a list of rules of to do and not to do. This is about the condition of your heart. 
And this apparent de-escalation of the severity of sin from murder to just coveting something, what it actually is teaching us here is that as the uh, supposed severity of the sin de-escalates, it communicates to us an escalated need for true holiness. That true holiness is not just keeping the rules, but true holiness is having a heart that is content in Christ. And what hope do we have for all of that, to be holy not just in our actions but in our hearts I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to come up and join me. Manny's going to come forward. You can try to ignore him. He's going to be starting some water back there because we have water baptisms after this message. What hope do we have for holiness? And I know at this point some of you are like, well, this is the Old Testament. <laughs> Let's get to the New Testament where Jesus loves everybody and allows everything. <laughs> However, you get to the New Testament and actually in many ways gets harder. James 2.10 James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this, if you broke the law at one point, you've broken the entirety of the law. He's not letting anybody off the hook. So what is our hope for holiness? If we can't keep these rules, if we can't keep the law, if we break one of them, we're guilty of breaking them all. If we can't even change our own hearts, how can we possibly have any hope to be holy? Well, the answer is actually found in Paul's writing in Galatians. I'm going to finish with this passage. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 27. He says, so then the law, the law was our guardian or our mentor until Christ came in order that we might be justified, not by keeping the law, but justified, which means to be made righteous in God's eyes by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. If this doesn't make sense, let me explain it. Here's what Paul's saying. That the law was given to us not that we might save ourselves. The law was given to us so that we would realize we cannot save ourselves. The danger is not that you can't keep the rules. The danger is that you think you can. The law was not given to lead us to salvation. The law was given us to lead us to a savior. A Savior named Jesus who came and kept the law perfectly in our place, not just as our example, but as our substitute. And so here's what the Bible says, that his perfect righteousness, his right living, his right standard, his resume is given to all who place their faith and trust in him. And at the cross, he took our resume of law breaking upon himself and paid the price for it. He gives us his resume of perfection so that when the Father looks at those who trust in the Son, he sees us as if we lived the life that Jesus lived. And that's the hope we have when it comes to the law. So how do we live free? How do we do it? We actually got to follow our steps in reverse. How do we live free? We go back to the previous step true worship. The only way to live free is to truly worship God above all other things. And how do we worship God above all other things? We go back to the first step. We have to receive his grace. We have to see his sovereign grace at work in our lives. And once we've seen his grace, then we can worship. And once we can worship, then we can live free and serve him. Let's pray together this morning.